It took two long and bloody conflicts for the Army to dislodge the Seminoles from their Florida strongholds, and a handful ultimately were allowed to remain. Jackson never doubted the justice of his actions, and he truly believed that once beyond the Mississippi River, the Indians would be forever free from white usurpation. Fur trappers, traders, and missionaries would be permitted to pass through the Indians' new home and venture out onto the Great Plains or into the mountains beyond— but there assuredly would be no further upheaval because army explorers had reported the Great Plains as unsuited to white settlement, and the public took them at their word. But already there were pressures on the periphery. A burgeoning fur trade on the Missouri River expanded white contact with the western tribes. Also, the removal treaties bound the federal government to protect the relocated tribes not only from acquisitive whites, but also from hostile Plains Indians— who had no desire to share their domain with newcomers, be they Indian or white. Meanwhile, white Missourians and Arkansans demanded protection from the dispossessed Indians in the event they found their new land somewhat less than the Eden they had been promised, which they did. The government's answer was to build a chain of nine forts from Minnesota southward to northwest Louisiana between 1817 and 1842, creating a tantalizing abstraction known as the Permanent Indian Frontier. Of the 275,000 Indians whose homelands lay outside Indian territory and beyond the newly constituted military barrier, the government cared little and knew even less— White conceptions of the Indians of the American West were simplistic and tended toward extremes. Indians were either noble and heroic or barbaric and loathsome. But when the permanent Indian frontier crumbled less than a decade after its creation, a cataclysmic chain of events suddenly brought whites and Indians face to face west of the Mississippi. The first crack in the permanent frontier appeared in 1841, Lured by the promise of fertile land in California and the Oregon country, a few lumbering caravans of white-topped prairie schooners ventured tentatively onto the plains. The trickle soon became a torrent, and the rutted wagon road thus created along the shifting sands of the dreary Platte River became etched in the nation's psyche as the Oregon Trail. Then came the annexation of Texas in 1845, and a year later the United States and Britain settled a contentious dispute over the Oregon boundary. In early 1848, the war with Mexico ended in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, by which Mexico ceded California, the Great Basin, and the Southwest, as well as its claims to Texas, recognizing the Rio Grande as the international border. In just three years, the United States had grown by nearly a million square miles and become a continental nation. Expansionist orators exhorted Americans to fulfill the nation's manifest destiny by emigrating to Texas, California, or the Pacific Northwest. No one as yet considered the Great Plains other than a vast and tedious obstruction. In August 1848, gold was discovered in California's American River. The following year saw a mass migration unequaled in the young nation's history. Within a decade, There were more whites in California than there were Indians in the entire West. Genocidal gold seekers decimated California's peaceable small tribes, and the growth of white settlements in the newly organized Oregon Territory alarmed the stronger Northwestern tribes. As yet, there had been no open conflict with the Indians in the West. But the peace was tenuous, warned the Commissioner of Indian Affairs.
The Indians, he said, had abstained from attacking emigrant trains out of an expectation of reward from the government and not from fear, because they had not felt our power and known nothing of our greatness and resources. They would not feel that power for some time to come. The government lacked anything resembling a coherent Indian policy, and the small regular army needed time to build forts in the West. In any case, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs need not have feared any great concerted resistance to the white deluge. For one thing, the Indians did not perceive the white onslaught for the apocalyptic threat to their way of life that it was. But even if they had, the Indians of the American West had no common identity, no sense of Indianness, and were too busy fighting one another to give their undivided attention to the new threat. And this was their Achilles' heel. Only in the Pacific Northwest were the Indians able to unite against the sudden and vigorous...